this podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Wednesday, October 24th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, Donald Trump said there were riots in California. There weren't. That there were Middle Easterners in the Honduras caravan. There aren't. And that there will be tax cuts delivered by Congress in the coming months. There won't be. But we did get an apology from Megyn Kelly about blackface. On yesterday's show, she did a segment on Halloween costumes and expressed the sentiment that, depending on the motivation of the costume wearer, a white person can darken their face a bit just to pull the costume off. Here was Kelly explaining to her audience what presumably most of them knew, that it is not okay, that it's actually never okay for white people to wear blackface in 2018. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Megan Kelly, and I want to begin with two words. I'm sorry. You may have heard that yesterday we had a discussion here about political correctness and Halloween costumes. And that conversation turned to whether it is ever okay for a person of one race to dress up as another. A black person making their face lighter or a white person making theirs darker to make a costume complete. Well, that's not really the crux of the issue. Black person going as a mime, not really a problem. White person going in blackface, that's a problem. And I think she knows why. Still, she continued. I defended the idea, saying as long as it as it was respectful and part of a Halloween costume, it seemed okay. Well, I was wrong, and I am sorry. A lot of black people online are not accepting her apology. I suppose that that is their right. What do they want from the wrong white lady on TV? She's no longer wrong. Do they want her not to be the white lady on TV? Oh. The interesting thing to me is not that a Fox News host would hold the opinion that blackface can be okay or that it's overly sensitive to criticize a white woman for wearing makeup that makes her face a little bit darker when she goes as Diana Ross in a Halloween costume. That was, by the way, the actual example that Megyn Kelly was talking about. The interesting thing is that Megyn Kelly, though she spent years marinating in the Fox News universe, wasn't savvy enough to know exactly which stances would fly and wouldn't fly in the NBC News universe. I'm not exactly saying, how could she not know that it's never okay to wear blackface? I'm not saying that. What I'm more exactly saying is this. How could she not know that her current audience and employer would find this particular argument a third rail? Kelly hasn't jobbed particularly well with the audience on NBC, but I think it's more about a mismatch of tone and some of the content of her show as compared to the news of the day. I had all along, though, credit her with being extremely intelligent about how she is perceived. I'd have guessed that if you gave her a quiz about the differences between the Fox News sensibility and the NBC News sensibility, she'd have gotten 100% on the quiz. She might not be able to embody all the new NBC sensibilities. She might actually chafe against some of them. She'd stick to some of the old Fox News sensibilities because... Well, habit, but I also think that describes a bit of her worldview. But I always think she knew exactly where the lines were, but apparently not in this case. The apology ended with a sniffle, and then I think a bit of a little twinge of propaganda. So maybe this was a nod to her days at Fox. I'll play the audio, and then I'll explain to you what's going on in the video. The country feels so divided, and I have no wish to add to that pain and offense I believe this is a time for more understanding, more love, more sensitivity, and honor. 
And I want to be part of that. Thank you for listening and for helping me listen too. So the camera pans to the studio audience and they're wildly applauding. You hear them applauding. The majority of the crowd members shown are African-American. In a couple of subsequent camera shots, we see more snatches of the crowd. There are more white people mixed in there. But it's still the case that in every shot, we prominently see people of color. Now, I went back and I took some screenshots of the typical Megyn Kelly studio audience. Usually, it's not all white people who show up, but clearly it's majority white, at least in every other day that I looked at. Look, I'm not the Annenberg School of Communications here. I looked at like five or six days. I've posted all these screenshots uh, on my Twitter feed at Pescami, P-E-S-C-A-M-I. And also, let me give all the disclaimers. I was just going by what it looked like to me. I don't know the true ethnicity of the faces in the crowd. A lot of these people can be 164th Cherokee Nation, for all I know. We'll have to ask Professor Bustamante. I'm just saying, from outward appearances, which is what TV trades in, you can see that the normal Megyn Kelly crowd is majority white, but for her apology, endorsing blackface, the crowd seems to be majority black. Certainly not an accident, not a coincidence. You could even say it's good television, though certainly not of the nonfiction sort. On the show today, I spiel about bomb blame, but first, our returning champion, the lively and alert Maria Konnikova, is here to talk about sleep. Now, we've talked sleep before, It deserves a lot of talk because it is a third of your day if you're doing it right. And that's exactly the crux of the issue. Is eight hours sleep BS? And also, what about this idea of segmented sleep? Let me tell you about the next Slate Live event that I'm involved in. Slate's best political minds will break down the midterm elections and possibly just break down, depending on the results of the midterm elections, in a live conversation in Brooklyn. It'll be me, Jamel Bowie, Dahlia Lithwick, and Jim Newell at the Polanski Shakespeare Center. I can walk there. I know where that is. That will be the Thursday after Election Day, which is to say November 8th. That will be November 8th. Join us for the lively recap discussion. We'll take your questions, too. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets to that event. And now we bring you a conversation that promises to be energizing and not enervating. Yeah, look them up. Don't fall asleep because we're talking about sleep. How important is it? I'm going to say really important, but there is a number that is often, if not always, associated with it. You need to get your eight hours sleep. There's perhaps no other number in health besides the 15 minutes between eating and swimming, which I think we've exploded as a myth, that is so associated with an activity that you would think maybe has some wiggle room around it, right? I know the USDA has a 2,000 calorie recommendation, but no one really says, oh, you need to get your 2,000 calories or you got more than 2,000 calories. But with eight hours sleep, it's pretty doctrinaire. Should it be? Or is that bullshit? And which is exactly the reason we're bringing on Maria Konnikova. She's the author of The Confidence Game, and uh, she's coming out with her poker treatise, The Biggest Bluff. Hello, Maria. How are you? Good. How are you, Mike? I'm, I'm well. Since I've been uh, awake or uh-huh. even alive, I've been told you need to get your eight hours sleep. So let's go back in history. Was it always eight hours? Was this always the recommendation? Um, so normally we get the eight hours from people who've been kind of 
looking at the recommendations by the National Sleep Foundation mm-hmm. or the other NSF, <laughs> not the National Science Foundation, yeah. it, it has never, by the way, been eight hours. It's always been a range. Okay. And it's seven to nine hours. Mm-hmm. But that's actually notable because the ranges a few years ago, they re-looked at all of the data. The ranges changed for every other age. Oh. Except for except for adults. So the whole idea of the eight hours, though, okay, it's the midway of the range. Seven to nine. How yep. confident are they about the range? Yeah. You casually said most people meet, need more than eight. Yep. So that tells me that the range is in a perfect bell curve or else eight yes. would be what most people need. Yeah, so the reason you have that range mm. um, and that you can't really say how much each individual needs is that people who are sleep specialists want to hedge their bets uh. because it's one of these things that it's pretty likely that you don't need 10 hours as an adult. Then you might actually have something wrong with you. So um, some people are starting to study the genetics of sleep dur- duration and look at, you know, how do people deal with sleep deprivation, which is one way of looking at do you actually need more sleep or not, right? Are you, are you as sleep deprived as I am when we're both forced to function on, you know, six hours of sleep or seven hours of sleep? And if you're not, then you probably have actually slightly different genes when it comes to that sort of yeah. sleep duration than I do. Yeah. It's a faster way of doing it than keeping you in a lab for a week and just watching. Because we know, I mean, just in a, in a yeah. nutshell, what sleep does is something like vita- revitalize cells or something. So sleep does a lot of things. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's essential for memory consolidation, learning, but it seems that one of its most important functions is cleaning. Yeah. A few years ago, this woman, very smart researcher, uh, Mike Nedergaard. Um, she, well, you know what? She's smart. She gets like eight and a half hours sleep a night. She probably yeah. does yeah. because what she found out is that when we sleep, um, our brain actually flushes out a lot of misfolded proteins and other trash ah. that has accumulated during the day. Um, and so when we're when we're awake, our brains are working, all this stuff is happening, and you know, there our cells are making trash, and then at night the channels of the brain open up, allowing us to flush this trash away. When you don't get enough sleep, that cleaning process can't happen. Plaques and misfolded proteins end up building up. And you end up accumulating this stuff, which can cause dementia, can cause things like Alzheimer's. Or just a not lot of being able happen. to access the right word at the right time. Exactly. That actually, makes, that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Tip of the tongue, et cetera. So this is a very new thing. We don't know a lot about it, but it seems to be one of the essential functions of sleep. Um, before, there used to be a joke by one of the foremost sleep researchers of the 20th century and he said the purpose of sleep is to cure sleepiness yeah um and good sleep humor. <laughs> and that's that's good sleep yeah. humor yeah but it does seem like there's there's definitely more of a purpose than that and when we're sleep deprived that doesn't actually happen um so yes i'm guessing that she gets her full however long she needs so, so when we were talking about the genetics of sleep yeah um some people seem to recover faster and some people seem to be able to sleep shorter. It seems like about 80% of how you react to sleep deprivation is heritable. So it does seem to me, though, if there's a physiological function clearing out the misfolded mm-hmm. proteins, you could maybe even, and well, that's probably just one of the things, there's probably other markers in the cell or wherever where you can say sleep-deprived person. There's 
probably going to be a way where you could measure someone in terms of their sleep needs and their sleep deprivation, not in terms of hours, but just in terms of how it shows up in the body. And that would be very useful. Absolutely. And there are actually other ways, not just before we even knew about the misfolded proteins, and which would be hard to measure because it's hard to go into the brain. And no, I'd like good CAT stuff. scans, brain scans, yes, you know, yes. taking the fluid off sure. the brain just to figure it out. <laughs> that seems very doable. Um, yeah. But the way that we, that we can measure it is by other hormones um, because we have something called sleep drive. As you become more and more tired, your sleep drive increases because the levels of certain hormones in your blood are building up. And you can actually look at those hormones. So adenosine is something that um, basically starts building up and making us sleepier throughout the day. Um, And then at night, Mm -hmm. we have something called melatonin. Melatonin is a signal that, hey, body, like we're, we're trying to get ready to sleep. And melatonin is triggered by light. So that's actually how we figure out when the day is ending. Um, and one of the ways that we know that it's very visual and so it really matters what lights you're surrounded with is with studies with blind people. So um, the blind that actually have optic nerve damage have a really hard time figuring out... Um, when to go to sleep, their circadian rhythms are messed up. But blind people who have damage to the cortex, to the visual cortex, so that they can't process it, but their eyes are actually healthy. Light is registering. The light is registering. They just can't see it. They can entrain perfectly. Their circadian rhythms are going well. It's, It's very clean data that shows that it really does matter and that the melatonin production does matter. So by by measuring those types of hormones, you can try to figure out where someone is in their sleep cycle, how tired they are, um, how much they are being driven to sleep at that particular time. And the other thing is that when this is a statistic that I still find totally mind-boggling. So if you go for 12 nights with six hours of sleep, which is actually doesn't an amount that a lot of a right it doesn't yeah, seem to be yeah, a disaster yeah. it's the amount that a lot of people get on a regular basis right. um, your cognitive and physical performance is going to be completely indistinguishable from someone who has been awake for 24 hours straight mm. which in turn is indistinguishable from someone who has a blood alcohol level of 0.1 hmm. That's so that's if kind of crazy. I've stayed up for 24 hours after only getting six hours sleep <laughs> for two weeks and done a You're little screwed. drinking. I could possibly don't don't operate heavy machinery. Be a weekend news anchor this in is, Des Moines. Yes, yeah. yes, you might be able to. And the the other thing about that is we don't realize we can only understand that we have a cognitive deficit for the first day. And after that, our self-awareness plummets. We think that we're actually functioning at, yeah. full, at full speed when we're not. And one other thing I want to talk about is sleep duration. Yeah. Uh, when we say eight hours or nine hours, uh, perhaps we make it sound like you, you shut your lids and then you're up nine hours later. Yeah. What about getting up in the middle of the night? What yeah. about you know getting that glass of water or, I will cop to this, occasional bowl of cereal? Yep. So if you're a healthy sleeper, you're going to wake up an average of five times an hour for just a few seconds. Yes. And you're not going to remember it usually. You might remember some of them, like if something actually happened or if someone disturbed you or if something disturbed you. But usually you don't remember. You just kind of wake up. And 
it seems to make sense from an evolutionary standpoint because sleeping is very dangerous. We should sleep actually a lot more than we do given the size of our brains. If you do an extrapolation from other primates, we should be sleeping 13, 14 hours, but somehow yeah. we don't. But then we'd let the chimps get the jump on This us. is true, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but we don't because um, that that's actually bad because if we slept for 13 hours, then we'd get eaten. And so it makes sense that we would actually have a mechanism for waking up multiple times during an hour just so that you can quickly monitor the environment in case there is a danger. You know, these days it's like, am I under my pillow? You know, but but in the past it might have been like, is there a tiger standing over me? Right. Then I might want to wake right, up. Right. So in the last few years, there's been this new theory, which has been pushed forward by a historian called um, Roger Eckerch, um, a historian who decided to look at the history of sleep and has proposed this thing called segmented sleep. He said in the past, people used to sleep in two waves. They had a first sleep and a second sleep. And in the middle, there was a break where they would do things like, yes. you know, talk about important things in bed. Yes. And if you're Shakespeare, you know, write some sonnets or yeah. something like that. I remember when this guy's book came out yeah. and it was like, don't you understand? For thousands of years, no one ever thought to sleep through the night. People would get up and they'd talk about things. Yeah. Like, Don't you think this would show up somewhere yeah, so, in where they wrote things down or yeah. in a play? Or, well, yeah. well so, so we do have references to first and second sleep in some literature. Yeah. And that's his evidence mostly. Uh-huh. Um, but it's all anecdotal. Um, and there hasn't been any scientific evidence that this was actually the case. And so I think that this is what we were talking about earlier when we were just talking about sleep drive, which is the first time you fall asleep is going to be the easiest because your sleep drive has been building up all day since you last got proper sleep and you're tired. So you fall asleep and then if you actually wake up, it's going to take you longer to fall asleep and you might do something else. And it's not really first sleep, second sleep. It's I woke up. And now I can't get back to sleep. Um, So there's not actually, as far as I could tell, there's not much scientific evidence behind first and second sleep. There's no way there could be. There's a reference in a play by Marlowe. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. Cervantes, Don Quixote. Okay. um, Some Shakespeare stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the references that we have. There is um, a study by a neuroscientist from UCLA not a historian, he's a neuroscientist, called Jerome Siegel, and he looked at tribes in Tanzania, Bolivia, and Namibia, um, because presumably, if segmented sleep is the way that we are supposed to, quote-unquote, sleep, then if you look at tribes that are still kind of living in the old tribal ways, Mm -hmm. you'll find segmented sleep, and he didn't find it in any of the tribes. Of course, maybe it's that these tribesmen would wake up and see, what's his name, Jerome who? Jerome Siegel, yeah. Yeah, see Jerome Siegel and get all freaked out. Who invited <laughs> Jerome Siegel this to Tanzania? So, oh. <laughs> so he did not find any segmented sleep. And I have to say, I mean, this is like the claims about the paleo diet. You yeah. know, paleolithic ancestors ate this, this, and this because we didn't have grains. Well, lo and behold, we find evidence that actually, yes, they did have grains, wild grains that they ate. Right. And that a lot of the diet stuff is just bullshit that yeah. you want to say to cite anecdotal evidence. And I'm sure that... You know, drinking cow's milk is not normal. I'm like, well, I'm going to say that we've been doing it a yeah, while. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure that Roger Eckerch is a great historian. Sure. And I think that it's Why, a really... What would, how would we say he was anything less yeah. than great and it's a, with it's the a, evidence being that he wrote a book that seems to not be true? But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> but but there is there's little scientific backing for segmented sleep having been a norm ever. Okay. 
So let us now play our game and render our verdict. And I will phrase it this way. A normal adult human should get eight hours sleep a night. Is that bullshit? Well, that's bullshit if we're talking about eight hours, period. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about a range, eight hours happens to be in the middle of that range. An adult needs to get, on average, between seven and nine hours. But in order to determine how much sleep you need, you actually have to figure that out for yourself. And one way to do it, you can actually do a study on yourself um, if your bosses allow you to, which is for the next week, don't set an alarm. Go to bed when you feel tired and wake up when you wake up and actually time how long you've been sleeping. Yeah, but it's important to go to bed when you feel tired. Yes. Because a lot of times we stay up until we have to. Yep. As opposed to go to bed when you feel tired. Exactly. You set your own alarm. Exactly. And don't get all jostled in the middle of the night by the prospect of Jerome Siegel (laughs) leaning over you and taking notes. This is true. This is true. Maria Konnikova is the author of The Confidence Game. Also, The Biggest Bluff, which is coming out pretty soon. It'll be exciting. And you, uh, like the kids say, don't sleep on that. All right. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. I'm going to go get some sleep now. All right. And now the spiel. Bombs were apparently sent, or perhaps apparent bombs were sent, to liberal public figures and CNN. Also, John Brennan was the recipient of a bomb. I would not call him liberal, but he has been the ire of some Donald Trump tweets. The return address on some of these bombs was Debbie Wasserman Schultz. So is this an incompetent bomber? Was this an incompetent hoaxer? What are the motivations of the bombster slash hoaxer? If this person or persons really meant to kill or at least hurt these mostly liberal institutions, that would mean that the right has gone crazy to egg such a person on, no? But if these were a false flag operation made to make the right seem extreme by attacking the left, that will make it look like some elements of the left have gone crazy, no? The guy who shot up the abortion clinic in Colorado is a symptom of the anti-abortion movement. The guy who shot Steve Scalise and the Republican baseball practice, that's a symptom of Bernie Backer's gone berserk, isn't it? How can you say yes to one, but not to the other? This is the perfect opportunity to commit to an ideologically consistent position because right now we don't know the ideology of the would-be attacker. So I think we have to either say that he or they or her or them is being egged on by some outside force in public or isn't. And I say isn't. No matter what the motivations are revealed to be, I would say the blame does not go on the outside force. The blame goes on the would-be bomber or hoaxer. I can anticipate your argument. President Trump truly does debase the discourse. He inspires violence. He literally tells people to beat other people up. He provides a permission structure for outbursts. Yes, yes, I concede. It's not really a concession. I assert that Trump backers at a rally will throw their fists faster than impassioned backers of any other candidate or any other person in public life. But killings or bombings or threatened bombings are the product of a sick 
out of touch with reality person. Also, I think Trump is the symbol of angry times, maybe the avatar of it, not necessarily the cause of it. I believe that we have always had a base level of violence, and sometimes this gets channeled in different ways. We used to have the phenomenon of going postal. Was that a logical response to post office oppression? Now we have the phenomenon, the increased phenomenon of massive school shootings, mass shootings in general. So that, as a popular way to air grievance, seems to have replaced the formerly popular trend of political assassinations. I think what happened is, or this is at least the theory, we've always had this anger, we've always had this free-floating anger, and we have this horrible access to guns, which is the main problem in my opinion, and this anger finds a way to direct itself. Now, we shored up the defenses against politicians. We got really good at making politicians safe via the security state and psychological profiling and the expansion of who gets secret service and police protection. So once we shored up the defenses in that vulnerable area, the free-floating grievance chose a softer target. I once did a story about a guy who invented a shoe that was designed to prevent ankle injuries because basketball players get ankle injuries. So I gave the shoe to a researcher and the researcher got back to me and he said, yeah, This reinforced shoe could very well diminish ankle injuries. It will almost certainly result in more knee injuries. Because when you have an integrated system, stress will be visited upon it with the same force. It will then travel through the system until it finds a weak point, and then it will assert itself. And even though it seems like society is crazier and angrier than ever before, there's less violent crime, murders are down. To quote a recent City Lab report, That once ubiquitous phenomenon of road rage is down, Uh, the author looked at Google Books and confirmed that there was road rage interest in the 90s, it plateaued in the 2000s, and it has had a relative decline ever since. This is one of my least popular opinions, not to credit the motivations of a mass killer or a would-be bomber. It seems really wrong to say that our extreme and angry president hasn't emboldened and enabled and empowered extreme and angry reactions. But I do believe if you say that, then how can you avoid saying, well, Black Lives Matter, in some of its rhetoric, in some way, inspired those killers in New York and Dallas to kill some policemen? How could you not say, you know, that guy who shot Steve Scalise, who was a big Bernie backer, I mean, Bernie bears some of the blame. I'm not prepared to go there. If our president were different, we may well have less targeting of these targets, but maybe not. We have had lunatics and extremists acting insanely and violently in the name of everyone from Jesus to Muhammad to the Beatles. And I wouldn't blame any of them. We can properly condemn extreme and inaccurate statements from whoever makes them without saying it necessarily put the idea of a bomb in anyone's head or a Debbie Wasserman Schultz return envelope in anyone's hand. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who combined for 16 hours sleep, 14 for Pierre and two for Daniel. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. She gets her REM sleep, which means she goes to bed by reciting backwards everyone in that one song. So it's Lester Bangs, Lenny Bruce, Leonid Brezhnev, Leonard Bernstein. The gist. Here's my personal version. Lloyd Bridges, Lonzo Ball, Leo Biscaglia, Larry Bird. Oomperu depperu and thanks for listening. <laughs>